Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Conference season is nearly over. We've still got the SNP gathering to come and the IFG team are back in Westminster after running a record-breaking number of fringe events in Liverpool and Manchester. There are some tired faces in the office, including my own. But which politicians will be returning to Parliament with new headaches to deal with? Has Rishi Sunak done enough to shake off the Conservatives' post-Truss era hangover? And did Keir Starmer give Labour reason to believe that a new dawn might be about to break? We're going to take stock of the post-conference landscape, pick apart Starmer's speech and look ahead to the renewal of parliamentary hostilities. Joining me in the studio, fresh-ish from the train back from Liverpool, are my IFG colleagues Kath Haddon and Emma Norris. How are you doing, Emma? Are you uh, feeling rejuvenated after a good night's sleep? Um... I think it's going to take me a few more days to feel rejuvenated after five days out of 10 at party conferences. How about you, Kath? My throat feels a bit sore, but I think it's not conference lurgy. I think it is that shouting in very loud rooms to try and get <laughs> yourself heard and have a conversation has affected my voice. All those receptions and discos. And I'm delighted to be joined on today's podcast by The Guardian's political correspondent, Kieran Stacey, also back from Liverpool. How are you doing, Kieran? I feel completely fresh. <laughs> I feel, <laughs> and you look it too. Uh, I've got young children. I was only woken up once in the night and that's, you know, better than the four hour sleep I've been surviving on <laughs> for the last couple of weeks. So yeah, not too bad. And you're back on the conference circuit having been away from Westminster and so on for the last couple of years in uh, Washington and Delhi. Is it good to be back? It is good to be back. It's nice checking in with old friends. I bumped into a lot of people at both Conservative and Labour conference that I hadn't seen for a long time. But I think two is enough. I used to do three. I used to do the Lib Dems and one year I did four. I went up to Perth for the SNP and that's definitely too much. So for those on their way to Aberdeen, I, I do pity you. Including one of our colleagues from the IFG who will be there. She's doing a sterling job this year. Now, Labour's conference was overshadowed, of course, by the awful situation in Israel. Kieran, did that have a bearing on the mood and tone of the conference? It certainly had a bearing on the coverage the conference got. So it wasn't on the front pages for a lot of the conference, which is unusual, especially for a party that we think is possibly heading into government. There was a slightly sombre mood, but I think that's as much just to do with how tight a leash the leadership is keeping on its MPs and members. People really didn't want to put a foot wrong. And that is especially true on the Israel issue, because this obviously has torn the Labour Party apart for the last few years. I think in a way, the extreme violence of Hamas's attack focused minds in a way that it might not had it just been ordinary hostilities. It meant that even those on the left of the party, even those who are most closely affiliated with the Palestinian cause, realised that the message had to be, this is a horrific attack and, and Israel has the right to defend itself. So perhaps Keir Starmer didn't have as much trouble keeping his troops in line on that issue as he might otherwise have done. But it's funny, once you get into the conference bubble, people weren't talking that much about Israel and Palestine. They were talking much more about the election to come. And then, of course, you know, tiny issues that you get involved in as a party, who's up for selection, who's up, who's down. These things that consume politicians at all times, once you get past that security barrier, kind of, you know, the whole place takes on a life of its own. Yeah, so Cathy, it's more about the external perceptions of the conference than the, the running of the conference itself. I mean, these sorts of 
foreign affairs, geopolitical issues are, are never easy for opposition parties, are they? No, in as much as you're not as closely in the loop on everything that's going on. Actually, in this country, the reason why opposition front benches are often, certainly the, the senior ones are made privy councillors, is to allow them to get briefings. So you assume that Starmer and David Lammy and other senior members were getting uh, briefings about what was going on. And yeah, I agree with Kieran. It, there was a sort of somber note. I mean, the stories coming out were horrific. And as new things came out, it obviously appalled many people. But actually, it wasn't that difficult for Labour to be clear about its line on it because the line is so obviously clear about how horrific it was. And I think actually it does show how far Labour have come that they didn't find it difficult to very quickly have a very clear message to say and, you know, being able to stick to it. I think for all politicians, as things go on, it becomes more complex because it is such a complex and unfolding situation. And Emma, Keir Starmer in his speech made some very clear points and received a, one of the most prolonged standing ovations for the, for the remarks he made about the situation in Israel. But more generally, looking at his speech, do you think he did what he needed to do? Yeah, I think so overall. I mean, it's obviously, as you say, it was a big moment for Starmer. Who knows whether it is going to be the last set of party conferences before a general election? I don't think that's totally clear yet. But I think um, he needed to do a couple of different things in that speech. He, first of all, needed to land a kind of big vision, like where, what are Labour pitching to the country? And I think he did that. You know, he was really focused on this idea of a decade of national renewal. I think he gave quite a hopeful message. It was quite aspirational, talking about providing the security that people need to thrive getting our future back. There was less focus on, I suppose, kind of talking things down, knocking things down as there had been at a Conservative conference and more about working towards something, working towards a future together, a clear pitch for multi-term government with that focus on a decade of renewal. I think another thing he needed to land was really firm criticism of, of where we are now, of the current state of things. And I think he he managed that too. I thought his line on Sunak not being able to see the country was quite striking and reflected the sense that the Conservatives have, you know, to some extent lost sight of, of people's lives. They're too focused on infighting, which was the big criticism, again, that was coming out of Conservative conference last week. I think something really interesting that, that came out of his speech was thinking about how parties are talking about about their records. And Labour have been, I think, you know, at points quite bashful about their record, you know, after the financial crisis, Liam Burns' infamous note, Iraq. And I think we've started to see a real shift in Starmer's speech on Tuesday. He was really confident, actually, in claiming Labour's history, casting them as a party that's used to taking power at moments of renewal in 45, 64, 97, you know, as usual, name checking some of the lasting changes that Labour governments have made around minimum wage in early years. And that felt like quite a contrast to Sunak, who, you know, is understandably having to essentially disown the records of his predecessors um, over the last 13 years so he can cast himself as the change candidate. So there was a real difference in the way they talk about their records. I think the bit for me that he needed to do that perhaps didn't come through as much as you would hope is the policy detail. So you've got the kind of what's wrong with where we are now. You've got the where do we want to end up. But there wasn't as much on the kind of how do we get there. There was some policy stuff, 1.5 million homes, um, technical colleges linked to the local economy, mental health support in schools and so on. So it wasn't it definitely wasn't policy free. But I think we're going to need to hear quite a lot more on how you get from where we are now to where they want to take us. I think that's really interesting, Kieran. Some of the journalists I spoke to at conference were complaining rather that there weren't enough stories for them. That's maybe the 
recent experience of the Conservative Party providing lots of sort of political intrigue and so on for political journalists. But do you think it was also this point that Emma makes about there not being a lot of new policy emerging from the conference? No, well, there definitely wasn't a lot of new policy. And one of those policies that Emma just mentioned, 1.5 million homes, has been a Labour policy for ages. <laughs> They've talked a lot about having 300,000 new homes a year. All they did is multiply that by five and, <laughs> and put a new figure on it. No, it, it, it was definitely drama-free. We've written a piece for The Guardian today, kind of summing things up, which begins with an anecdote, which... Uh, comes from my colleague Pippa Creera. She was in the bar late at night after Keir Starmer's speech and a senior Labour official is there asking journalists what they all thought and how it had gone and they all kind of replied in different ways and one said, well, look, it's just been a bit boring. And apparently the, the official's face lit up. He pointed at the person and said, right answer. <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted it to be boring. I think, though, that there is a problem. There's, there's two things that Starmer could have done with that speech. Um, one was a policy-heavy speech, which obviously he didn't do and deliberately didn't do. But the other thing I thought he could have done a bit more of is just sell himself. And I think he's not very good at it. I think he's temperamentally not him. He talks a bit about, you know, his pebble dash semi and he joked about that again in the speech. But what we really don't get, I think, is that feeling of he has actually come from quite a humble background. I think he was the only one of his siblings to go to university. He's certainly the only one of his siblings to have got to anything like the position he's in now. His family are not rich and privileged, which is kind of a little bit the air that he gives off. And I thought this was an opportunity for him to really just sell his story as being an example of what Labour stands for. But as I say, it's just not him. And maybe they thought in the end it would have been inauthentic to dwell too much on the on the personal stuff. Yeah, I was at a fringe event run by Moore in Common, which had Tom Baldwin, who is writing a biography of Starmer. And he did bring up that point about first to go to university and so forth. But one of the things that he was saying was that it's just not Starmer. He doesn't feel comfortable talking about that kind of stuff. He thinks of it, you know, they said he's not the natural politician because he thinks of this as just a job. And you don't go into a job interview and say, let me tell you stories from my childhood or, you know, let me tell you my my vision for politics or, or anything like that. You go in and you say, this is what I'm going to do. And here's the steps of how I'm going to achieve it. And so that was the argument that, that Baldwin was was bringing to why Starmer is like that. Yeah. And, and the perfect example of that is the fact that that book was supposed to be an autobiography. Tom was ghostwriting it for him. And then Keir Starmer apparently read it. This is the story I've heard secondhand, but uh, I can imagine it, it's true. I believe it to be true. Keir Starmer read it and said, well, it's very good. It's just not me. Yeah. Why don't you do it under your own name? And that is, that's him all over, isn't it? So Emma, do you think Accepting that this is Kirstama's style, but does that style of leader really work in politics today when we have here and internationally such a trend towards charismatic presidential style leaders, even in parliamentary democracies? Well, I think this kind of comes back to the boring point that Kieran was making, because I think, you know, we are used to wanting big charismatic personalities. And obviously, there are always there's always the comparison between Starmer and Blair and which kind of Starmer falls short of some of that, I guess, kind of star quality. On the other hand, I think people possibly in the UK have a bit of a distaste for kind of big charismatic showy leaders at this point. It hasn't been a great experience for them, certainly over more recent years. And so I think actually having 
a leader who pitches himself more as a kind of boring, stable person who wants to roll their sleeves up and get on with it could actually be quite appealing um, to the public at the moment. I think the class point is really interesting because Kafka and I totally agree that it's not something that Starmer feels really comfortable talking about as a personal story. But I thought that it was quite striking, actually, in the speech that the kind of pitch to working people came out really strongly. I mean, it was something that Starmer returned to again and again. And I think that that kind of class consciousness for me, came through a little bit more than it perhaps has done in former leader speeches. Yeah, I saw a piece out by JL Partners, the James Johnson outfit, looking at undecided voters, which seems to be where everyone assumes the election is going to be won and lost. They are still at a push saying that they prefer Sunak as a person. Some of them were saying that they thought he had the better conference, which, you know, may not be the view that the journalists took. But when pushed, they still said that they'd vote Labour rather than Conservative because the country needs a change. So there's a real dissonance going on between how the two leaders of the two main parties are being viewed and how the parties themselves are being viewed by voters. So actually, it maybe it's showing that political leadership doesn't matter as much. But the other thing is that we saw out of these conferences is how the two principals reacted in the moment, how they delivered the speeches and so forth. I felt that that Starmer's speech was better written and probably the delivery was slightly better. But obviously, we haven't touched on it yet. The notable thing was how he dealt with the protest at the very start of it. And I mean, we know from 2017 that your performance on the campaign trail, the awkward moments with members of the public, these are the things that can make or break an election campaign. So it's also a question of how the two of them will will cope with that. Kieran, you've been talking to lots of people involved in that historic 1997 Labour win. What, What are the main takeaways you've had from that? There's a reason to look at what happened in 96, 97, not least because Keir Starmer is so obviously looking at it and he's got people around him. He's got Peter Mandelson very close to him now and he talks to Blair and, you know, and he talks to to quite a few others around at the time. So he's obviously trying to repeat some of that success. But the people I talked to said a couple of things that are, are very importantly different from 1996, 97. Number one, the economy. Going into 1997, the UK economy had not shrunk in a single quarter for 19 consecutive quarters that basically had an entire parliament's worth of growth. That meant that going into 97, Blair could basically say, look, we're going to stick to the Conservative tax and spending plans because the economy's in a fairly good place and we can spend the proceeds of growth. And I spoke to David Miliband about this and, and he said, that was an okay position there. You can say, look, we, we're a change. The Conservatives are tired. They're running out of ideas, but economically, we're going to keep things on the straight and narrow. And that was fine. But what Miliband said is that this is not 97. This is more like something like 74, where you've got very high inflation and economic stagnation. And maybe just steady as she goes is not enough. The other big difference is that Keir Starmer is trying to do in three years or four years, perhaps, what Tony Blair and Neil Kinnock and John Smith did over a much longer period. So yes, Tony Blair did spend a lot of 96, 97 weeding out what I think Miliband called the hand grenades or or the bombs lying in wait for them, policies that they thought might get attacked during a general election campaign. But he was able to do that because there'd been so much policy development beforehand that he was able to rely on. You know, the the minimum wage had been a long-standing Labour promise. And then what Blair did was to say, well, I'll introduce the Low Pay Commission to set it rather than setting it at medium male pay. You had devolution was a long-standing Labour thing. And there there was the promise to have a Scottish Parliament. And what Blair and Brown have finally agreed was, okay, we'll do it, but only after a referendum. 
So he was able to go and just take out little bits and pieces, but still there was standing a very serious, quite bold policy platform. I think what a lot of those around Blair worry about with Starmer is that he doesn't have that. So he's weeding things out, but it doesn't start with that much in the first place. And that was particularly Alistair Campbell's criticism. And Alistair Campbell was very impassioned on this point, where Keir Starmer said after the Uxbridge by-election, we shouldn't have Labour policies appearing on Tory leaflets. Alistair Campbell told me that's completely wrong. We loved having our policies appear on Tory leaflets because it meant we could make the argument. We could make the weather. You need to do that. Otherwise, you're always on the defensive. And I think that's the message that some of them are trying to get across to Starmer. You can't constantly be on the defensive heading into a general election. Emma, I guess the feeling for Labour is, is somewhat that they come up with a good policy, it gets stolen. There aren't necessarily lots more policies behind that to fill in the manifesto they're going to need to have ahead of the next election. Definitely. And I think, you know, that point Kieran makes about the time that was put into policy development um, ahead of 97 is really important. We've what, got an absolute maximum of what, a kind of 15, 16 months until the next general election. Actually, on big policies that, that Labour were taking in a 97 like minimum wage, years of preparatory work had gone into building those to make sure that Labour were able to be quick off the mark when they came into government. And I do think there's a real question around, yes, you don't want to throw everything on the table um, at this point when you're in opposition because it just gives people an opportunity to pull your policies apart. But you do need to have done the kind of, you know, the deep preparation work on the things that you really want to make changes on and that you want to move on quickly. And so I think there's there's a risk for Labour there. They need to They need to do that preparation. It's also really affecting the way in which they're thinking about the types of policy they can do. The lack of money is clearly dominating everything. Nothing's able to get through Rachel Reeves' fiscal rules. And we saw that at one of our events on constitution change, where Anna Sawa was talking about the need to reset the relationship with the devolved nations and how they'd be able to do that, but also made the argument that when things are fiscally tight, maybe you can do constitution change because it's a way of doing big bold change that doesn't cost anything. The reality is that we know it does cost things and you should take a bit of time over it. So there's a balancing act to get right there. If they could announce some stuff that's, that isn't the same as pumping money into the NHS or other public services when you don't have it. But at the same time, we've written in our constitution review about the danger of chopping and changing constitutional reform where you haven't really thought through the consequences of it. Yeah, that fringe event was designed precisely to discuss our recommendations about taking your time over constitutional reform, consulting the public, making sure you construct buy-in from across the political spectrum. So it was not the not the response we wanted from Anasawa, but uh, an interesting fringe nonetheless. Emma, you mentioned Rachel Reeves' tight grip over the fiscal rules and the spending commitments that Labour feels able to come up with. But her speech went down pretty well, would you have said? Uh, yeah, I think overall. I mean, as Cass just alluded to, the big message was about fiscal discipline, exactly as you'd expect, reaffirming support for the OBR, for the Bank of England, talking about legislation to enable the OBR to publish a forecast, even if government doesn't ask for it, if there's a major fis a fiscal event happening, a commitment to only borrow for day-to-day -day spending, to have debt falling. So all the kind of big disciplined things that they want to signal were in there. In terms of kind of tax proposals, they were limited to very specific things. Labour are obviously very nervous about making uh, many commitments there. So talked about non-DOMs again, that on private school fees. 
you know, that's all aimed at raising, I guess, a bit of extra money for specific spending commitments. But we didn't see anything of the bigger picture on a strategy for tax and what the tax system might look like under Labour. And we saw exactly the same at fringe events. The shadow treasury team didn't want to talk about any other changes that they might be making to tax. Like Again, the kind of the tight grip was uh, was, was evident, I think. The, the, the other interesting bit was actually not what she said, but, but Mark Carney, the former Bank of England boss who recorded a video endorsement of Reeves that I think was supposed to play before her speech, but they had tech problems, so it ended up playing afterwards. And I think, you know, the commentary I saw generally consider this to be quite a coup for Labour, but I do wonder whether it's quite appropriate for Mark Carney to be seen to take a partisan position like that when his opinion is, you know, really relevant in the context of his former Bank of England role. And to me, there's a risk there that it just plays into some of the kind of bigger arguments about the politicisation of some of our independent institutions. So I was I was personally a bit surprised by that. Yeah, I was asked about that at a dinner that I went to and yeah, I put it into the category of former permanent secretaries making unhelpful contributions to public debate that just basically undermine the, their colleagues who are still working there. I think it is it is very tempting for everyone to want to get into the debate, but you've got to think about whether or not it's appropriate for the, the roles that you're doing. And talking about breaking conventions, there was a degree of surprise, I think, Kath, about the extent to which the Prime Minister continued with his normal agenda, some might say attempting to steal headlines from Labour during their conference. Is that a break with the normal sort of non-aggression pact there is during conference season? Well, it definitely is a break. It is a convention, not a constitutional convention, I'm pleased to say, but it is a political convention that you each let the other have the airwaves. Everyone was hearkening back to when Gordon Brown, as Prime Minister, did a surprise trip to Iraq during the Conservative Party conference. Yes, it wasn't even just one. There were several interventions, I think one of which was meeting the English football team. So, I mean, it's it's kind of an indication of what we're going to see over the next year. The gloves are well and truly off and it is an election where people are willing to fight quite hard. Labour didn't seem to mind though, did no. they? they? They, I thought they would get very cross about it, as the Tories did. You know, as as you were mentioning with that Gordon Brown trip, the Tories actually successfully turned that on its head and made it all about another scandal for Brown. But Labour didn't even try and do that. Now, whether that shows confidence, perhaps I don't know. Yeah, I guess it goes to that point of like, you know, as you say, this was the Labour conference was not the front page because there was something going on in the world. So then it's a question of you're vying for second or third page, page coverage and do you really mind? But also, it's not really about newspapers now. Um, we know that actually a lot of what parties are thinking about is social media, is videos and so forth. I am, you know, we'll long to read the sort of insider accounts of, of what kind of social media strategy you do, because most people don't listen to party conference speeches anyway. And frankly, most of them probably just saw the clip of the protester throwing glitter over Keir Starmer and you know, so as a political party, what is your goal from party conference? What are the buzzwords and lines that you want actually the public to be hearing? And do Labour think that they had a success on that front? I doubt if whatever Sunak was doing made a difference to that. I, mean, I don't know what you think about this, Karen, but one conference goer said to me that they thought that there was some stuff that would have been in Keir Starmer's speech, which wasn't precisely because Labour were cognizant of the fact that they were getting not that much coverage for the conference and they wanted to wait until a later point when they could bring out some proposals and would have more attention. Or do you think that was just a, an no, excuse? I, I, yeah, I don't think that's true because we were briefed well in advance that it would be policy light. And so we weren't expecting major policy reveals. Did we expect more on devolution? Um, I thought we, we got a reasonable amount. Um, we certainly, 
Uh, and now I'm trying to disentangle the briefing we were given the day before from what he actually, <laughs> what you actually said. Heard. Yeah. Um, shall I shall I say what we assume because we obviously saw yeah. the front pages and it was it was particularly about the actually giving away. So it's the Brown Commission staff of yeah. will he actually give away power? You know, if you're in number ten, do you really want to start devolving power? And then there was one sentence in the report. And there wasn't really a lot more detail of what they were going to do. So from an educated observer's point of view, it didn't feel as much as the briefing implied there would be, but perhaps mm. that was all there were, ever was going to be. Well, I remember in our front page story the day before uh, the speech, we had been told that they were going to say that local regions would be allowed to ask for whatever powers they want, and there would be an automatic assumption of a yes from Whitehall, unless there was good reason for there not to be. So I think that's where Labour thinks that there is, that's obviously very Brown Commission. I think that's where Labour thinks there is a big change. But they have said throughout this process that this take back control bill, which they'll pass in the first 100 days, won't actually say in it what powers will be devolved. It will be up for local areas to ask for the powers. And so, you know, beyond that, you know, you then put a legal requirement in for a default yes, and you have to show very conclusively why it shouldn't be a yes if it's not a yes. I, you know, there's not a lot more they can say. They they also said the importance of getting local authorities together into regional areas is is something they want to see more of. I mean, how much are you going to be able to sell the technical yeah. details of that during a major conference speech anyway? A lot of that, I think, usually comes out in the documents around it. Emma, what's happening with Starmer's five missions? They were sort of up on banners, I think, around the hall as he gave his speech. But do you think this is they're still going to be a centrepiece for Labour and are they getting cut through with the public? Well, you know, I think this is really interesting because we didn't actually hear much about missions until the leader speech on Tuesday. It didn't really come up much in in other shadow speeches and on my kind of tour of the, the fringes at conference, most of the panels on mission government, and there were quite a few, didn't have a shadow minister on them. They weren't there talking about it. So I was wondering whether Starmer was even going to say much about them in his speech, but he did end up returning to them. He talked about the five missions. He kept using this phrase mission government as kind of shorthand for the ambitious, transformative, multi-term program of renewal that he says he wants to pursue. So it felt like they haven't fully moved away from missions yet. But I do wonder whether the kind of lack of chatter about them outside of the leader's speech tells us something. And I, I definitely think it's possible the public don't really get them. And um, the polling I've seen doesn't look great for missions as, as a concept. It doesn't mean I think the idea isn't right. At IFG, we're definitely a big fan of setting, you know, big, ambitious, long-term goals and creating kind of stable, consistent policy frameworks. So that's what history tells us works. But I think you've got the kind of apparatus and machinery that you use to achieve goals. That's not the same as what the kind of core of your comms plan should look like. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if Labour keep the idea of big long-term goals, but they start to move away in public from using missions as the shorthand for that. So it stays an organising principle, but perhaps they move to language that feels a bit more tangible for the public. And this gets to the heart of the contradiction in a lot of what Starmer says. What Starmer and I think his top team have been very, very good at is identifying where the problems are in the British state. Mm. You know, he, he uses the shorthand sticking plaster politics. But in his speech at the beginning of the year, which incidentally I thought was actually better than his conference speech, he developed a very strong narrative of how things had gone wrong, why decision making was failing the British public. But then the decisions that they come up with or the policy proposals they come up with 
are just fall so short of fixing yeah. the, the problems that they've identified that it just doesn't match up. And I think that's part of the public problem they have as well. They keep going out and telling the public that the country is fundamentally broken. And then when they're asked, well, how would you fix it? They say, well, well we can't do much about it. And, and this was encapsulated for me in a, a conversation I had with a shadow minister, a senior shadow minister, who said the problem with the five missions is there's only one. Four of those missions are simply we'd run things reasonably effectively. We'd just have well-run departments. The one mission that's actually a mission is the Green Prosperity Plan, the £28 billion fund, which will fund the jobs of the future. That is a genuine vision of how the country is going to change over the next 5, 10, 15 years. But they keep scaling it back. And we have another story out. I'm speaking on Thursday. There was a, a story on the front page of the FT today saying that they've just tweaked the wording on that plan to include all of the current government green spending, which reduces it by a further £8 billion. So they keep retreating from the one mission they actually have. And obviously, some of that is personality tensions within the shadow cabinet. But if they keep saying that Britain's broken and then keep retreating from any proper solutions for how to fix it, then I think that's why the public don't quite trust Starmer. I think it's exactly the same on the, you know, the opportunity, I was at the opportunity mission launch in the summer, and this was supposed to be the mission that summed up all the others, you know, it was at the kind of heart of, of their pitch. And actually the policy that was announced as part of that was pretty small stuff, some kind of school improvement, you know, a bit of teacher retention payment, there wasn't much there. And actually, I think, Kieran, it might have even been you and I that were talking about this at conference, but the education offer that you might expect to see as part of this big opportunity mission, just as isn't there at the moment for Labour. So it does feel like there's a big gap between this kind of theory of government and then the really tangible, chunky policy that the public's going to want to see if they believe that Labour can deliver this. Well, let's take childcare. I mean, Bridget Phillipson did this big speech at Onward earlier in the year where she said the, the current system of 33 hours is completely broken and doesn't actually subsidise nurseries to fund enough places for those who need it. Completely true. We now find out that Labour's not planning to put any extra money into childcare and as we're still waiting for any sign of how they would change the system. I suspect they won't do what Bridget Phillipson said they would do, which is to scrap the 30-hour system altogether. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Labour decides to retreat from that pledge later this year. So this kind of brings us full circle to what does this mean for, you know, if there is an election and some people I spoke to thought it would be pretty much a year to now and there wouldn't be party conferences next year. There was a lot coming out of conferences that I went to. They talked about de-risking, that it's all about these undecided voters. And for Labour, what they are trying to do is mean that it's not risky for Conservative voters to stay at home because they're annoyed with the Conservative government. And it's not risky for undecideds who don't want to vote Labour to vote elsewhere. And I think, Hannah, you put it well, Of it's just sort of heading towards an apathetic vote of who can... Cultivating apathy. Yeah, cultivating <laughs> apathy amongst the electorates. And uh, I mean, it, it's not an encouraging position to be in. Kieran, so as the parties return to Westminster, what are the big clashes you can see ahead in the autumn? Well, we've got actually quite a busy autumn to come. Uh, in a week's time, we're going to have a couple of by-elections. We're going to have Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth. I think, uh, although Labour were sounding confident about both of those during their uh, during the conference, I wouldn't have thought either of them should be taken for granted, especially mid-beds where there's now a three-way fight underway. I mean, every chance the Conservatives could keep that seat. Uh, later on in the year, we'll probably have more by-elections. We'll also have a King's Speech, 
and we will have an autumn statement. The King's speech will be a really interesting one because it looks like the government legislative program for the final session, we think before an election, has a little bit like Labour's policy platform been winnowed, winnowed down and winnowed down. We hear a lot at the moment, for example, about the ambitious plans Michael Gove has for things like renters reform or leasehold reform and running into problems at number 10. I would expect from that a lot of positioning bills that are designed to try and create a wedge between Labour and the public. And, you know, basically you'll have a whole set of campaign issues rather than fundamental legislation. But, you know, that'd be interesting and setting the tone for the rest of the year. And then, you know, the autumn statement, that could prove a really difficult moment. If Jeremy Hunt is not willing to cut taxes, we're going to have another round of rows within the Conservative Party. So, yeah, there's a lot more to come before December's over. And Emma, we've seen the COVID inquiry get back up and running in the last couple of weeks. How much of a problem do you think that's likely to pose for the government? Well, I think I think if any module is going to pose a problem for government, it's this one. This is the one looking at central government decision making, how decisions happen in number 10, how science advice was used, how the PM operated, um, how the Chancellor operated. So Sunak's probably going to be giving evidence later this month. You can already see that there's scope for lots of difficult stories. Some of the WhatsApp exchanges between Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson have been released by the inquiry this week, describing the cabinet sec- then cabinet secretary Mark Sedwell as out to lunch, cabinet officers, I think terrifyingly shit was the phrase used, um, claims that lockdown announcements were almost delayed because the civil service didn't want to work weekends. I mean, look, who knows whether any of that is actually true, but it, it gives a flavour of the kind of material that's going to come out as part of this module and it definitely isn't going to make for comfortable reading or comfortable discussion for the current government. I think possibly like the one the one upside is the interim report on this module where the inquiry chair will actually start drawing conclusions about what she's learned isn't likely to come out until after the general election. I think it's probably not going to come out until sort of February 2025 onwards. So at least uh, at least the conclusions will be post-election. But um, in the meantime, I think, yeah, potentially very uncomfortable. You can really hear Dom Cummings' voice in those WhatsApp messages. <laughs> <can't> <laughs> exactly. That was a quote <laughs> from me and not me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's it for today. Thank you so much to Emma Norris, Kath Haddon, and especially to Kim and Stacey. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do subscribe and please leave us a glittering review. A quick plug too for our new podcast, a joint effort with Paul Johnson from the IFS and Anand Menon of UK and a Changing Europe. It's called The Expert Factor. And yes, it's an expert deep dive into the big issues and questions facing British politics right now. Do check it out. Normal service is about to resume in Westminster and that's where our attention will return next week. Whatever twists and turns British politics brings, for now though, everything will continue to be overshadowed by the awful scenes in the Middle East. Everything has been put devastatingly into perspective. See you next week.